This episode contains sensitive content that may not be appropriate for listeners of all ages. Listener discretion is advised. From Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Mountainland Physical Therapy's Pelvic Health Podcast. I'm your host, Madison Splann. Thanks for listening. Today's guest is Matthew Carter, doctor of physical therapy, and he attended the University of North Florida in Jacksonville for his undergraduate degree in 2011, followed by the University of Florida for his doctor of physical therapy in 2014. He had a spontaneous epidural hematoma at the level T4 in 2007, causing complete paralysis below this level. He specializes in spinal cord injury treatments with specific treatments in bowel and bladder re training. Thanks for being here today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Madison. It's a pleasure. Awesome. So for our listeners out there, what we're going to be talking about today is um, the differences in bowel and bladder retraining based on the level of your spinal cord injury. We'll kind of give both scientific information as well as real life. Here's what we're doing from inpatient all the way to home training, as well as different multidisciplinary approaches in order to um, gain the most independence with these individuals following their spinal cord injury with their bowel and bladder habits. So to begin, Matt, can you just describe to our listeners a little bit more about your specific spinal cord injury? Yeah, totally. Um, I was in my sophomore year of undergraduate studies at University of North Florida there in Jacksonville and went with four friends over to London to on a backpacking trip. And the first night I got to London, I was with only one friend and we were waiting for two of the other friends to come to London from the the US. And I woke up with really bad back pain. And within about two hours, I was like completely paralyzed from my chest down. I I actually had taken a, my mom had given me like a, a painkiller. I had never taken one in my life. And I my my right like leg started to go numb and kind of started climbing up and I was like man I can't wait for this painkiller to start working in my back and little did I know that I was actually like getting paralyzed in the <laughs> as this was happening uh so and as the paralysis was kind of coming on, my friend and I, we were 20, I, you know, I was 21 years old. So my friend was like, man, maybe you're dehydrated. Let me go down and get you some food. And so, uh, by, by the time that he had gotten back, I was, I had tried to crawl to the door and I couldn't make it to the door. Um, and I was, I'm a pretty, I was, you know, 21 and, uh, a, a big, strong guy. So, uh, you can imagine I was, I was pretty, pretty affected at that point. And he had, I'll, I'll never forget. He had put me up in a, in a chair in the room and I was trying to eat and I had to have him, I had to have him help me get like, get, get back down. And he kind of grabbed me from under the arms and to get back, you know, onto the, the bed and my legs just like completely collapsed out or like fully paralyzed. Um, so went to the, the hospital and, and they basically did a, kind of an assessment and realized that I had, you know, significant neurologic injury kind of going on. They had no idea what it was. And I went into emergent, uh, spinal cord, uh, decompression surgery. So they did a laminectomy and that T 
three through four, I believe the first one was, and came out and I was paralyzed basically from my nipples down, um, even before the, the surgery. And then five days later, my face started going numb and my right arm, and they think that they didn't get completely cauterize the the bleed in my back so it actually climbed up to like t1 and t2 so they had to go back in um and 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 redo a surgery i believe it was like t2 t1 and 2 laminectomy again and then came out kind of from that surgery so i spent a month in re or month in basically on my back in london uh, my parents came over it was a pretty nerve-wracking deal and then I ended up flying a medevac jet home uh, to Miami where I grew up because they thought that maybe the altitude uh, or the, the pressure in the cabin had something to do with this um, arteriovenous malformation that I was born with. Um, uh, so they we flew real low all the way back to Miami and then I spent my rehab in, um, in Jackson Memorial in Miami for a month there too. And so kind of knowing that, you know, spinal cord rehab begins day one, right? Like they're in the hospital, you're an inpatient, and then we transition to intensive rehab facilities, depending on the level, all the way up to 90 days, depending on insurances. And then from there, we go into different kind of outpatient settings, or depending on your kind of caregiver situation, you might have to go into an assisted living center. Um, and so obviously for Matt, it sounds like you had a really good um, kind of solid support system for you back in Florida that kind of helped with your process. So why don't you kind of start walking us through when this bowel and bladder management begins? Uh, at what point is it in the inpatient? Is it when you start going into the intensive rehab where you're having those three hours of therapy a day? Kind of walk us through a little bit of that. Yeah. So, you know, for, for myself, it was a little bit different just because they were so uncertain about what was going on. Um, but the vast majority of people that sustain spinal cord injury, it's a traumatic injury. Um, once they're stabilized, then they go to inpatient rehab. And that's when the bowel and bladder um, conversations start. Uh, so they start an inpatient rehab and then they kind of continue on. Uh, one thing that's really tough about inpatient rehab is, is it's, you just had this new injury, your life has changed overnight. And now it's like, giving you all this information about something that most people never even kind of never know that bowel and bladder is affected in spinal cord injury. So uh, they wake up and they can't go to the bathroom and then people are giving them all this information about what to do and it, it can be quite overwhelming. <laughs> Yeah, I bet it really can be because, yeah, you're not only learning bowel and bladder management, you're learning, you know, depending on your level of the injury, are you able to transfer? Are you in a wheelchair? Are you going to be able to use different adaptive equipment? Um, yeah, so it would seem like the information, the education that occurs in the inpatient rehab facility must be really intensive and almost have to kind of get out a binder and take notes in the beginning to kind of stay on track with everything that's going on. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. And what what often happens is it's been a healthcare practitioner that learned from, you know, their their predecessor how they were teaching bowel and bladder management and it d often doesn't have someone involved that maybe has done it before or that that has an injury or that, you know, they they often don't follow up from the inpatient setting to what's going on, you know, 2 months or 6 months down the road. Um so your your presentation 
from a bowel and bladder standpoint at, you know, week one or two and six months can be very different just because of how much medicine you have on board and how, how you're managing your life and transfers and, and all those things. So, um, yeah, it can be, there can be a lot of knowledge that might not be super relevant, you know, in the future. That is very true. Yeah. Cause also, um, depending on the type of injury and swelling and things like that during the healing process that first six months, things can definitely change in regards to the injury itself as well. Um, and so I think, you know, having this podcast is kind of that one step in the right direction to try and get better at this multidisciplinary approach so that there is maybe a better follow-up or individual kind of case manager specifically for this that's helping to keep, you know, whether it's physical therapy, pelvic therapist, urologist, gastroenterologist, neurologist, all on the same page because it definitely takes a team in order to make this the best um, quality of life for these individuals for sure. Yeah, you're exactly right. And that's part of why I went into the outpatient setting. I feel like I I was very overwhelmed in the inpatient setting and I felt like I could I, I previously had a business management degree and went into um, physical therapy after my injury, trying to impact people's lives and, and, and help them with a unique perspective. And I felt like I could have a little bit more meaningful connection and, 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 and continuum of, of kind of care um, in that outpatient setting. Well, that's great. We definitely need more therapists like you out there for sure. <laughs> So moving forward now, can you maybe describe to our listeners the different type of spinal cord injuries based on the levels and how that causes the difference between what we call an upper versus a lower, a lower motor neuron injury in regards to bowel and bladder training and health? Yeah. So as you just stated, you know, there's kind of two, the two presentations of bowel and bladder are, are upper motor neuron and lower motor neuron uh, lesions. So um, with an upper motor neuron lesion, your upper motor neuron basically refers to your brain and spinal cord and your brain and spinal cord. So uh, basically you kind of have a cutoff at around L2 um, where the spinal cord ends and it goes into peripheral nerves. So basically everything above that, and then that's dependent on a, per, a, a person's anatomy. So it might be more like T12 or it might be more like L3, but basically anything above that would be considered an upper motor neuron injury and anything below that, that T L2 uh, level would be a lower motor neuron injury. So characteristics of those upper motor neuron, you, you have spasticity, um, you're hyper reflexic, um, and you don't have as much of that kind of quote unquote, like dense atrophy as well. Um, when you get into the lower motor neuron, it's more that peripheral nerve injury. So you're a reflexic, um, you don't have that, you know, that hypotonia, so that's kind of the, that's kind of the, how that works for the upper and motor neuron, um, just injuries in general. Great. So let's maybe dive into the bladder to start. So for patients that have a lower neuron spinal cord injury, what does that kind of training look like specific for those individuals, knowing that they, you know, have that loss of the voluntary control. Um, they're not able to store that urine. They also aren't able to really empty it that well either. Um, and then we also have that kind of looming neurogenic shock of 
that these individuals also have to be careful of going through their life with their bladder training as well. Yeah, and I think it'll maybe help to paint a little picture of what that person looks like for some of the listeners. So your you, L2 is kind of your waist, you know, ish region. So you're, depending on the severity of your injury, how far you are out, you're you know, likely either a, a, a wheelchair user or ambulatory with some kind of assistive device, um, braces, walker, potentially. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very variety, but uh, you're paralyzed kind of from that like waist level down um, in, in a chair. Your arms work fine. Um, so your trunk, your trunk control is good. So often what those, those people tend to basically have um, – a bladder that fills and then the the biggest mechanism is just intermittent catheterization. So when you have full hand function, you're basically performing that every four to six hours um, and, and you're performing it from your wheelchair usually most of the time, depending male or female. Um, so you don't have a sense that your bladder is full. You just know that you need to be on this schedule and, and you perform kind of that independently because of the function that you do have. That's great. And I know, um, like for, for intermittent catheterization for those individuals, maybe that aren't very familiar with that, there are different forms of catheterization as well. And, um, the biggest goal, you know, is we don't want to have that bladder become over distended, which can be a really significant problem, which is why there is that range from kind of the four to six hours, depending on how much, what type of fluids you're putting into your body. Are they diuretics that are going to make you produce more urine? Um, and so you definitely, I would say this is probably one of those areas where that time frame is one of those that's definitely titrated. Um, and you know, this can be a really good time when we pull in those urologists to do different ultrasound testing to see, you know, okay, after four hours, how full is my bladder? Okay, great. Now when you catheterize it, we want less than 50 milliliters of fluid left in that. So we're not having some residual volume in there that might be festering bacteria causing other infections down the road, um, which are obviously a huge component of this type of therapy also is maintaining the latter health and reducing infections and pain and um, pressure ulcers as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that kind of what you're referencing there, the, the gold standard is the urodynamics, which they, they put a catheter, um, they put a catheter in your urethra and then also in your um, anus. And then they kind of measure the pressures uh, of how much your bladder is filling. And then the, the biggest thing to worry about is how much the, once the bladder gets too full, then it, it backs up into the kidneys. And that's where you can have long-term kidney damage. Um, so that's what you're definitely trying to avoid. And with these people that have the lower injuries, they tend not to leak as much. So the risk of that is, is significantly higher. Right. Yeah, definitely. Because they just can't empty. They have the failure to empty that urine and, um, those sphincters are, are extremely tight compared to say the other type of motor neuron injury, which this is a perfect segue way to go into that. So now Matt, why don't you describe the characteristics of the upper neuron spinal cord injury in regards to kind of the bladder training? Yeah. So I think just going down the same kind of path, you could have someone that has 
a, a neck injury, so a cervical spinal cord injury, or just below that, a thoracic spinal cord injury. So cervical means that your hands are, are definitely involved as well. That person could be a power wheelchair user or maybe a manual power assist kind of wheelchair user or thoracic injury, basically anywhere from your neck to your waist, uh, depending on where that is. You're usually a manual wheelchair user and, you know, have quite a bit of trunk um, loss there. So those people, again, the, the gold standard there is, is the intermittent catheterization um, for, for the vast majority of those people. Um, as you get up to the a higher injury, you're in this kind of C5 uh, and above area, you're looking at most people getting uh, what they call a suprapubic. So that's basically a, a tube that goes directly through your uh, a, a stoma in your in your belly into your bladder that and then you wear a bag um, most of the time sometimes they'll clamp them um, and and that basically just fills in the bag so your your bladder is just basically continuously draining um, so other, other than those upper level injuries basically from kind of c6 down to um, Till, till you get to the lumbar level, um, you're you're going to be an intermittent catheterization, a lot like your your lower motor non-injury. So every four to six hours, again, you're gonna you're gonna independently cath, depending on how much function you have. Um, if you have limited function, um, a lot of females will get something called a Mitrofenoff, um, if they're if they have hand involvement. So basically, they can create a stoma through your belly button that you can cath through so that you have better access um, functionally instead of having to manage clothing um, and and transfers and things to be able to to be able to, to to perform that catheterization. Oh, that is great. And I think, you know, since we've been talking about the bladder, I think one of those biggest pearls or red flags that you learn about in PT school and is like in any clinical or exam is that autonomic dysreflexia. Um, <laughs> do you want to maybe describe to our listeners that may have been out of PT school for a while or not really specializing in the neurology um, aspect of of patient care kind of reintegrate us back to that. What is, what is autonomic dysreflexia? What do we need to be looking out for? And why is it such a big deal? Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of funny because all this, we, we are, I work at a big teaching facility and, and all the students come and they're all just horrendously worried that someone's going to get autonomic dysreflexia. And you would think they're like the human is going to explode the way that they are, are worried about it. But um, basically you, when you have a spinal cord injury, you can't sense a, a painful stimulus below that level of injury. So your body it goes into what we would call like a flight response um, and your blood pressure will rise really high, um, pot potentially causing, you know, if, if it's sustained for a long enough period of time, like a, you'll, you know, have a stroke. Um, it can be very, very serious. Um, the amount of people that, that have consistent autonomic dysreflexia in my experience over the years um, is pretty low. Um, usually people kind of identify it, um, you know, early on and then know what the causes of that, of that are. So in, for our discussion, um, an overfull bladder um, can cause autonomic dysreflexia. A overfull bowel 
can cause autonomic dysreflexia. It tends to be a, a bladder more than bowel, and it also tends to not be um, someone that intermittent catheterizes. Um, it tends to be usually like a kinked catheter. <laughs> Um, that there's getting no outflow, like maybe on those higher level patients I discussed that have the super pubic. So um, there's no outflow and then it's just backing up, backing up, backing up. And autonomic dysreflexia only happens at T6 and above. So that's kind of your two levels below your, your nipple line, just for reference, is the people that will be affected by that. I think you like painted that picture perfectly because they do scare the living like pee out of you since we're having that conversation yep. in regards to this condition in PT school. I mean, they just hammer it in. I still remember it and remembering one of my first clinicals in a skilled nursing with somebody with a catheter and be like, ah. Yeah, so. especially the management of it. You're not supposed to, to lie someone down. You're supposed to, you know, have someone seated. And, and uh, all the students I get, they, they come in and they're like, this is what you do with autonomic dysreflexia. <laughs> I'm like, all right, well, I'm glad you're prepared. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. Um, well, so now that we've kind of covered some of the upper lower in regards to bladder, let's maybe transition now over to the bowel. So Matt, let's maybe describe to our listeners the characteristics of the lower neuron spinal cord injuries in regards to bowel management. Um, And I do like how you paint that picture again. So for those listeners out there, the lower motor neuron spinal cord injury are going to be those individuals that have fairly good trunk control, full arm control, um, and their paralysis is from the waist down. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and the bow here, the, the biggest thing, if I could hammer home one point, is diet, diet, diet. Um, the, because you have you, – because you're areflexic and you have, um, you know, without the, the, the tone and the anal sphincters, um, you, you have a lot higher tendency to have accidents. And depending on what you're putting in to the system, um, the, the likelihood of these accidents, you know, is a lot higher. So with these lower – level injuries, you don't have um, reflexes. So basically the kind of gold standard for um, evacuating your bowel is, is, is being on a bowel program, one. So when I, when I say that, I mean that you perform every day, um, usually at the exact same time a day, um, and, and often sometimes in these patients it's twice a day, uh, what they call a manual, manual evacuation. So you're basically putting your finger into your rectum and then manually pulling the, uh, the stool out of the rectum. Um, that's the, the most common way to manage that. Uh, there's also a couple newer things. Um, one's called peristine. That's basically an enema, um, that, 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 that puts fluid into the bowel and then kind of holds it in there for a second and then pulls all the, all, all the stool out. But the vast majority of people will do that manual evacuation technique. Great. And then um, for our upper motor neuron, what's the difference there? Yeah. So with the upper motor neuron, um, we're not thinking as much about, uh, we're not thinking much about the accidents. Those people tend to not have accidents, but they have to be on the same bowel program. Again, those people are not doing it twice a day. It's usually one time a day, uh, maybe even every other day for a lot of people. And because you have a reflex in, in, in the, um, a reflex arc intact, 
basically what you're doing is is you're putting something um, a, a variety of different things that I'll discuss, but you're putting something into the into the rectum there to kind of confuse it to contract. So it's kind of confusing your body to say, hey, my rectum's full, and then it's going to kind of push out the the the, the stool. So uh, it can be kind of a combination of things. Often you have either a suppository or a many enema that you're using. Um, and often it's in conjunction with the, what they call digital stimulation, which is basically just using your, your finger to confuse your bowel, your system, that it's full, and then it reflexively kind of contracts, pushing the stool out. I remember uh, just a funny thing there. I remember when I was in Miami they uh, in inpatient rehab, they told me that I had to do um, digital stimulation and it kept coming up and kept coming up. And I remember, I remember asking my dad, like, like, where's the computer? Like what, like where, I don't understand this whole digital concept here. <laughs> That's great. Um, um, so yeah, that has nothing to do with anything technology oriented. That's actually just your finger. Um, but yeah, so it's usually a combination of the digital, um, the digital stimulation and a suppository mini enema. The, the common one is called um, called enemies there. Great, yeah. and I know a big thing with these individuals is, you know, with the exception of Matt and other individuals out there, a lot of these are very traumatic injuries. Um, some can be, you know high level sports injuries all the way to a motor vehicle accident. And so, you know, these individuals were ambulatory prior to this injury. And then all of a sudden the world gets rocked and you're supine, depending on the type of injury and the precautions associated with that. And so when we go from walking maybe two miles a day in the sedentary life all the way up to 10 miles a day, and then we go to nothing, our peristalsis, that natural um, contraction within the intestines is going to naturally slow. And so um, really getting these individuals back to as much activity as they can safely as quickly as possible will help to prevent that slowing and keep that general health in the gut improved as well as metabolism by keeping energy levels and activity as high as possible, depending on the spinal cord injury level. All right, Matt, now moving forward, let's maybe talk about, you know, the different levels of spinal cord injury and how much assistance these individuals might need. Um, and then what different equipment there is for these individuals to be as independent as possible. Yeah, would you like to start with the bladder or the bowel? Let's go with bladder. All right. Yeah, so, so like we discussed, basically everything kind of in the thoracic level and the lumbar level should be independent with that catheterization. Um, and then once you get up to the C6 level is where you basically have kind of a, a, a level that's saying I could either maybe be independent or not. Um, often patients might have an initial injury of say C4, but they might have a little bit of wrist extension. When I say C6, the, the, the big, the big kind of take home is wrist extension without wrist extension. You're not going to be able to perform independent catheterization. Um, however, for whatever form that is. So someone might have a C4 injury, but they might have some C6 on one side that allows them to be able to, that allows them to be able to catheterize independently. Um, there's a couple different, uh, there's a couple different catheters that have like a valve that doesn't 
cause the catheter to pull back out every time you try to move your hand, um, some increased dexterity systems. Um, there's some different things there that allow that, but, but basically you're looking at, you know, kind of that, if you have wrist extension, you, and are able to have some kind of ability to manage clothing, one transfer, to wherever you need to be, um, it may that be under your own power, or you might have like a like a lift system, you know, that allows you to do it. Um, but yeah, the big thing are those two things, and then that wrist extension. Great information with the bladder. Okay, so now let's maybe talk about bowel management, and at what level do individuals require caregiver assistance? At what levels should they be fairly independent, and what maybe equipment are is out there to assist with independence in bowel management? Yeah. So again, pretty similar. the The lumbar and thoracic injury levels, i.e., you have hand function, um, are are always independent, um, unless there's some kind of extraneous factor there, but the vast majority of the time, uh, with, with, as you get up higher with the bowel, uh, depending on what you're using, um, if it's just in the lower levels of the cervical spine, C8, C7, C6, um, they have some devices that allow you, uh, depending on your hand function to be able to use. So if you're using a suppository, they have these suppository inserters that you can put a suppository in and then the basically the cup kind of presses against your tissue on your bottom and then it, it ejects the suppository into your, into your rectum uh, because you don't have the ability to hold that because of hand function. Um, there's a similar device for digital stimulation as we discussed before. Again, if you have that wrist extension, you can use these devices um, to be independent. Um, so, but then anything above that, uh, kind of, again, I don't want to say just C6. I think we learned, we, some of us learned that in school that there's this perfect level of independence and not independence. And through my clinical practice, that's just, it, it's just not accurate. Um, it's because some people, you know, have, you're really with a spinal cord injury, you're an N of one, you know, so you might have one side that you can function with a little bit more that allows you to be able to do something that, that, that other people with that injury might not be able to. But for most purposes at C5 and above, you're not going to be able to perform a bowel program. You're going to need caregiver assist. Great. Now, in general, obviously, I think the classic PT school answer to this question is it depends. But in general, how long does it usually take for a patient to have full independence with management, whether it be caregiver or personal independence with this? Because understanding that things change, we go from inpatient to outpatient types of therapies. But, you know, kind of with your clinical expertise, as well as personal experience, what do you feel like is kind of that goal? golden time frame where most individuals tend to be independent. Yeah, it's so funny getting asked a question like this because I had a really unique perspective of being the, the patient before I was the therapist. And when when you say that to a patient, oh yeah, everybody's, you know, everybody's different. I can't answer that. It drives us crazy. But then as a therapist, I want to say that because it's, you know, it's the true answer. So usually you don't become independent until you're out of that inpatient rehab setting and usually at least 
depending on how much function you have, again, like we've discussed, the higher level of the injury, the more complex it is. You're having to manage clothes. You're having to manage transfers. You're having to, you know, do a lot more of it. Um, the lower down, the more the quick, more quickly you'll become independent. Um, but that being said, with hand function and all that, you're probably, you know, you know a month, couple months outside of um, outside of inpatient rehab at home. Um when you're higher, higher level injuries, some of those kind of like I discussed C6s and some of those, it can be, it could be quite a, quite a time uh, just because you're figuring out some of those other aspects, the clothing management, the transfers, some of that more complex stuff. So, you know, being outside of a year um, and then becoming independent isn't atypical. Got it. And now, you know, in your line of work, being in the outpatient facility, are you commonly using that multidisciplinary approach? Are you in contact with your patients, urologists, dietitians, GI, or do you feel like you kind of take it all on yourself? What do you experience personally or in your personal experience? How did that approach with all these different specialists kind of work? Yeah. Yeah. I think that, I mean, I can talk from the patient perspective first. Um, again, a unique perspective to have both sides of it, but as a patient perspective, I, I, I felt that I got good support from, uh, I never got any support from my therapist, um, or any, anybody like that about my bowel and bladder, um, after kind of the initial training and stuff, but I did see urologists and I did feel like they gave me, you know, good care. And I, you know, I got follow up and was on the right medicines and those kind of things. Um, as far as the bowel goes, though, I felt like no one wanted to talk to me about what was going on with my bowel. Um, and you go see a ga- you know, a, a gastroenterologist, and and um, you know, they're kind of like talk to the physical medicine rehab docs. And I felt like that was a that was a little bit more frustrating to me than the than the urologist uh, or than the, the bladder aspect of it. Um, from a from a from a clinician standpoint, now for myself, I patients tend to ask me about it or I tend to be a lot more involved because 14 years or 13 years after my injury, uh, I've been doing a bowel program daily. I still catheterize the same kind of every four hours. So uh, I, I, I tend to to take on a lot of questions and give a lot of suggestions based on my own experience and seeing you know, a number of, of a ton of spinal cord injuries over the years. I think the average therapist is quite, quite a bit scared of it. Um, so I think that the best thing to do there is, you know, is for the clinicians out there that maybe don't see a lot of spinal cord injury is kind of pushing them to the people that, that might be a little bit more aware of that. But absolutely, I refer to um, a number of urologists in, in, here in the Valley um, that, that have a little bit more focus with spinal cord injury. Um, I think that it's really important to have someone that sees spinal cord injury frequently um, and, and is aware of kind of a lot of the struggles, you know, successes, failures, frustrations of patients, because time and time again, they research what are the biggest things that affect quality of life and spinal cord injury. And number one and two, every single time is bowel and bladder function. Wow. I think that's probably the biggest take home for sure, at least for me so far, Um, because even having this women's clinical specialist um, certification, there were only a handful of questions on that exam regarding to spinal cord injury. And I do feel like it's an underserved population, just like you alluded to in your conversation so far. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of people don't want to talk about it. Just, you know, just like pelvic health in general, it's a, (laughs) 
right? It, it's a it's it's a scared to talk about it until they do, and then they're so happy they do. And I think the biggest thing too is like, you're not alone. You are not alone. Everybody with a spinal cord injury has to go down this this pathway. The journey may look different, but at the end of the day, you're all having that same goal of being independent with your bowel and bladder management and having that highest quality of life possible. And so ask the questions. If you don't feel like you're giving the right answers, you need to go find the right person that is. Um, and we'll kind of get to that at the end of the podcast where you can either reach out to myself or Matt for further questions if you're in an area where you feel like that's not really um, a service being provided to you. So kind of along that line, um, Matt, besides what you've already expressed to us, did you have any other frustrations with your encounter with bowel and bladder management? Um, besides, you know, the, the lack of really bowel training and understanding, especially knowing like the digital stimulation and just kind of whew, that going right over the head in the beginning and the therapist thinking it's so straightforward saying digital stimulation and you're thinking electronics, you know, just simple things like that. <laughs> yeah. 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 Just for me, you mean personally as a, as a patient? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, it, it, it really has evolved over the years for, for me. Um, the catheter, the, the catheterizing has been pretty constant. Um, I've used different, I've used different devices depending on, um, you know, I'll use certain catheters that are a little bit more compact that my, I might put in my ski jacket, you know, um, or something I might use a little bit different one when I'm, when I'm traveling. So I can, you know, not have to dump, dump out the urine. I can keep it in a, you know, closed system, but overall the, the catheterizing has been pr pretty normal. Um, there's a number of things that I've went through, like you can get Botox, in your bladder to try to relax it so you don't have so many accidents so um but you know i've tried tried in in in, in you know, done a lot of things but a lot of that's just been trial and error and i think having someone that that you can you know reach out to you know madison or myself or, or someone else that's that, that that has had these some of that has kind of walked the walk that can give you suggestions about these things um it, it's just such a step up because so many of us have just you know done trial and error and then figured out a lot of the suggestions i'm making are not something i learned in school right or that anybody's told me it's it's what i you know i've kind of experienced myself and then as far as the bowel goes the bowel to the bowel has been is, is a lot more frustrating especially depending on what you're using because it's a time it's a real time factor um, my bowel program used to take two hours um, now it's probably about an hour, um, just because I use a little bit of a different device, but, um, going to grad school, I used to do it at night and then I had to switch, you know, timing because you can imagine working full time and, and then trying to have a life and fitness and, you know, everything. It just, it's, it's, it's really hard to make all that work. So, um, that's probably the biggest thing is time for time for my bowel. Now that makes sense. That is a long period of time. People can't even fit in an hour for reading a book or exercising, let alone just bowel management. And so understanding what a lot of these patients are going through on a day-to-day -day basis just to kind of make it to the next day is huge. <laughs> and yeah, it's exactly. And for some. No, you're exactly right. 
just the morning routine becomes uh, way your at post spinal cord injury becomes way longer than it than it should be. Yeah, yeah, and hopefully you know there's awesome engineers out there continuing to develop awesome technologies out there to continue to improve these different durable medical equipment to help with the bowel and bladder management of this population. Well, we all got our of, fingers crossed. Yes. So I'd say the last big question I have for you, Matt, is do you have any specific pearls that worked for you or have worked for you as a clinician that might um, that you might be able to share with our listeners that might be spinal cord injury patients or physical therapists that want to start treating these type of patients? Yeah, I mean, I think for the the bladder, I guess, you know, to start with the bladder and, and, and really bow is kind of like we just discussed is just trying to get access, you know, however that may be, you know, the forums online or, um, you know, going to a urologist that you might be going to a urologist and, and, and they they are just not giving you what you think you, you know, that you need, um, or you're just getting frustrated, you know, and finding, seeking out someone that's a little bit more specialized, um, in spinal cord injury. And I'm not by any means saying go onto a forum and do what these people in, you know, some other state are telling you to do. Um, but you can also take that information and be more educated going to your physician or going to your therapist so that you can make, you know, the, 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 that can inform kind of the questions you're asking and therefore um, the suggestions that the, the healthcare practitioners are, are making. So just being more informed um, and, 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 you know, talking to people that have, have went through these situations and, and getting suggestions from there, um, I would say is probably the biggest thing on bowel, you know, on bowel and bladder. Great. Yeah. Well, in closing, thank you all for listening. If you'd like to speak with a specialist, please email podcast at mlrehab.com. I would like to thank Matt for coming on the show today. And Matt, if listeners want more information or would like to get into contact with you, what is the best way to do so? Yeah, probably the best way to, to, to do that is uh, is just email. Uh, my email is matt, M-A-T-T-C, at N-E-U-R-O-W-O-R-X dot org. So that kind of give me an email, and, and, and I'm happy to facilitate any communications through that. Great. So thanks again for listening and please tune in for next month's episode. Also remember to subscribe to this podcast to get the most up-to-date episode information and downloads. Thanks. This podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Exercises that are safe and appropriate for some people may not be for you. No treatment program should be undertaken without first consulting your physical therapist or physician. The contents of this podcast is protected under United States copyright laws and may not be reproduced, redistributed, transmitted, displayed, published, or broadcast without prior written permission of Mountain Land Physical Therapy.